Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, your chance to hear from a tested executive, one practical, proven idea that will help you run a more successful and sustainable business. Today's guest is a thoughtful person. He's curious. He is decisive. He's rational. He's pragmatic. And he's the CEO of the Indiana Innovation Institute. He's Steve Kelly. Steve, welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. Oh, thanks, Ed. Fun to be here. And Steve and I first got to know each other when he was at Battelle, which if for people that may not know Battelle, it's based in Columbus, Ohio. I believe it's still the world's largest privately operated or funded research organization. And Steve was there for almost 30 years. And when he and I met, he was the president of the contract research part of the organization. Steve, first of all, why don't you d- correct any inaccuracies I gave about what Battelle is or what they do? Um, no, you were spot on. It is the world's largest uh, independent contract research and development organization. Yeah, so how did you get there? Well, I, I know you have degrees from uh, Wisconsin and I think MIT. Am I correct on that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, so what was the journey to Battelle? How did you get there? You know, it's one of those coincidence sorts of things. Probably not uh-huh. coincidence because you end up running in the same circles. Uh, I, I had run into them while I was doing uh, user representation work in the Army. Uh, they were doing some requirements development in, in, in a field. Didn't dawn on me. And then a, a number of years later, somebody showed up in my office out in the middle of the desert in Dugway, Utah, and said, hey, I heard you're getting out of the Army. Have you thought about Battelle? And I said, well, not in about 10 years. But it, it turned out they were doing things that I thought were pretty important in weapons mass destruction defense. And so I went out to Columbus for a couple of years, and it turned into 25 Really cool organization, huge impact. Uh, they're doing some neat stuff in, in COVID response today, uh, capitalizing on both the WMD work and infectious disease, disease work they've been doing for years. So people have already, that, that regular listeners to this podcast, people have already come to the conclusion that you're not the typical executive that I speak to or with. <laughs> um, so, so your background, your pedigree is a bit different. I'm curious about, you went from the military into Battelle. Were, were those pretty different, I would assume, pretty different entities culturally to be part of? I mean, I, I'm guessing that, that that had to feel pretty different for you. Well, you didn't have to wear a uniform, and there was never a PT test. So that was that was kind of fun. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, you know, I came out of the uh, my last few years in the military were in the the R and D side of the house. Uh, you know, solving solving sort of important mission problems. Yeah. Uh, and the next twenty five years, we're doing exactly the same thing. Okay. Uh, some of it, you know, a good deal of work was for defense, but there was important work for. Uh, for health and life sciences companies, work in the the uh, oil and gas arena, uh, and even work in basic science, helping uh, helping NSF with major programs. So it was, in other respects, it was also very mission focused. Uh, it's a really really focus on outcome for the clients. Yeah. Uh, so you get that mission buy in uh, that keeps people in the army, and it certainly keeps people in the R and D world as well. Uh, you get you just get 
you just get wrapped into the mission and it's a lot of the work you do is so important. It's hard to imagine doing anything else. So are you more influenced today in the way you lead and manage by what you experienced in the military or at Battelle? Uh, you know, a little of both. We're products of our experience. Um, you know, the military for those, it's, it's these days, uh, less than 2% of the population serves. So they don't have a really good idea of what, what it really is like. Certainly there are instances where it's command and control. When things are on fire, you're not discussing how to put the fire out. But when things aren't on fire or you're doing planning, uh, where you get ready for something, it's a very collaborative organization uh, taking advantage of insights from people of all ranks uh, to get the mission done. And the same thing rolls over into the R&D world. If you want to get things done, it's not com- you, you can try command and control. Uh, just doesn't work. Uh, it just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I, I think about uh, how you and I met and the work we did together at Battelle. And, and clearly, uh, you were trying to influence people. You were not trying to make them do stuff. You were trying to get them to buy into what needed to be done. Do, do I recall correctly that contract research had, what, 3,500 people? Or was it larger than? I, I think 3,500. Yeah. You know, it went up and down. Yeah, uh, but but the summers it get much bigger when you yeah. had uh, some programs that have big internship uh, yeah. roll-ins. So now you're responsible for an organization at the Indiana Innovation Institute. It's not quite as big. Well, you know, it's ten. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so are your leadership issues entirely different, or are they still the are they are they just a different magnitude? They're the same in many respects with the direct reports, right? Because these are brilliant accomplished people who I'm working with. Um, It's a little lighter because the other 3,500 people doing people stuff aren't there. Right. Uh, There's only 10 people doing people stuff. Uh, And I'm fortunate the people I'm working with, they don't do much people stuff except in the good sense of it. There's there's none of this, none of the sort of silliness you can get with a large crowd. Yeah. Uh, But that's part of the reason I went there is, when you get a big organization, sometimes just the organization's existence vacuums up a lot of a lot of resources and in, in, in time. Uh, and here, I get the opportunity to focus on mission outcomes without having to fight through the bureaucracy because I'm the bureaucracy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> you've met the enemy, and it's us, right? <laughs> um, that's that's interesting. I I think you've got a really valuable perspective about what it takes to create new ideas, products, services. And you've you've grown up and, and your career has been in a collaborative environment. I'm curious about the partnership between government and private enterprise in creating something new. Am I correct in assuming that that is part of the mission of Indiana Innovation Institute? Is that is that right or not? Absolutely. That's what attracted me to the uh, to the opportunity is to continue to continue to work with the government, especially the, the national security community on important problems, uh, but be able to take advantage of changes in technology, changes in acquisition landscape, uh, changes in uh, peer competitors to bring some different approaches to uh, to those solutions. Uh, some approaches that maybe a big organization just just doesn't have the flexibility to undertake. You, you know, collaborating with the government to solve important problems, again, from the outside, it might seem non-obvious. Uh, but from the inside, the government often has some of the most compelling technology problems out there. 
you know, not all problems are amenable to technological solution, right. but a lot do require a tech solution. Sometimes it's to solve an older tech problem. And then the other thing the government can bring to bear is, is a level of extended commitment of resources, uh, both at scale, but more importantly, through time, that it can be really hard to get to if you're in, in a commercial business. Um, you know, we've worked with, I work with federal clients for a decade on problems that take a decade to solve. And it's really hard for many businesses to stick to that. That's those sorts of timelines. Well, and, and yeah, it, even if they want to, sometimes they can't, right, in a private yeah, enterprise. Yeah. So the government provides a mechanism by which they can they yeah. can truly run the marathon. And I, I should, if I can interrupt, though, because no, that, that, that might leave people with the impression that everything takes place at an aircraft carrier build scale. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, there's there's a lot of problems that are crucial, need to be solved tomorrow, need to be solved in, in, a, in a week or, or a month. Uh, and again, you've got... When that mission requirement rolls in, you get a lot of people pretty excited to get some really compelling, uh, compelling problems fixed today. Maybe, right. it's with, maybe it's a duct tape and you got to come back with a big welder in a month, uh, but you can get it fixed today and, uh, and continue to move for mission accomplishment. You're listening to the Ed Epley Experience. Email Ed now with your questions for today's guest to podcast at theepleygroup.com. In his book, Let's Be Clear, Six Disciplines of Focused Management Pros, author Ed Epley breaks down key practices of professional management, how to implement them, and why it matters. Purchase your copy on amazon.com today. Develop your competitive edge for the future while building a sustainable and thriving business. Well, your discussion about time frame really takes me to the question I was thinking about, which which is in today's environment, we're, we're for the audience, if, if this is not exactly when you hear it, forgive us, but there's a COVID crisis going on right now. And so I've seen what appears to be a variety of different partnerships or collaborations that have been taking place for, you know, PPE equipment, for testing and protocol, for even uh, legislation and or um, mm-hmm. compliance stuff to, to you know get through the bureaucracy and red tape or to eliminate it temporarily. So is this a classic example of when collaborations can really uh, spur innovation or change or uh, improvements just uh, in a relatively short period of time? Do you think we'll see that here? Oh, absolutely. I think what's interesting about COVID, given all the, you know, the many problems it's causing, but from the innovation and the collaboration standpoint, it, it lets people see under the hood of the type of things that go on between government and industry without fanfare on a regular basis. You know, maybe not with this level of uh, international global urgency, but, you know, there's a lot of creativity both on the tech side of government and on the machinery side of government, you know, contracting officers, program managers, funders. Uh, that you just don't get to see every day. And now you're getting to see it play out at at a much bigger scale uh, in public. How much breakthrough innovation do you think can occur in a, in a crisis like this? I'm I'm wondering, I'm wondering how much game changing stuff could actually uh, result of over the next six to 12 months. Hard to say, right? This is life sciences. Uh, The one of the tough things about biology is it does what it wants to do, not what you want it to do. Yeah. I believe you can get, 
you can get a lot of fascinating fixes really quickly. I mean, we're seeing that with people deploying 3D printing, just the neat thing that, that Battelle did with Decon of protective masks. Right. So those are the kind of innovations that, you know, fix the problem today. The longer term fixes, you know, assays for uh, coronaviruses that change uh, immunizations against a tough virus, those give you the opportunity to stick to it because maybe you can't get it fixed in six or 12 months. But if you, but if you stick to it in 18, 24, maybe even parts of it take five years. So if you work the, if you think about working the basic research that need, where there's a fundamental problem you don't understand in parallel with things that are on fire and you got to put them out right now, you can make some, both some near-term fascinating fixes and some longer-term uh, revolutionary fixes. And IN3, where, where you currently are, is this something that you, I mean, is there opportunity for your organization where you are currently in this space right now or not? We're not working life sciences. Okay. Um, IN3 is more working uh, cyber hypersonics, uh, secure microelectronics and things that have a different, different time arc. Haven't been involved with life sciences for a long time. It's not a problem I felt we should bring uh, bring rookies to jump in on. Uh, okay. There's a lot of brilliant people in uh, in life sciences industry, in life sciences R&D out there. So do you differentiate between entrepreneurs and innovation? Do you, do you see them as mutually exclusive or do you see them as uh, one and the same? Or what's your philosophy about that? Uh, I'm thinking of a meeting. I guess it was one of those don't tell who said what meetings with yeah. a very senior government person and one of our peers in the lead, industry leader says, you know, all those startups, those guys are great for invention. But if you want innovation and you got to deploy it, you need a mature company. Uh, I don't think that's correct. Uh, I, I, in some cases, it might be right. If, if, if you've got an innovation and it's got to go to, into an air, you know, big aircraft system. Right. Yeah, right. You need a big aircraft. On the other hand, there's a lot of things that the entrepreneur uh, can both invent and then if if they're willing to bring on the team, work work collaborations, they can actually drive it in, in, into the marketplace, innovations that actually change how we uh, how we operate, how we live. So I you know some some inventors, that's not their thing, right right. Exactly. Uh, they want to pass it off. And man, some of them are so freaking smart. You don't want them wasting their time trying to figure out how to make a production line run because <laughs> there's really smart people to do that. Uh, on the other hand, some some things are just too hard to transition. Uh, and you you want that you want that inventor to just grind it out uh, and turn out something in 50 years goes from, you know, two guys in a garage to Intel, especially physical world. That, that's the tougher decision point. Software often, yeah, it's, it might be nominal easier to get get all the way to innovation and deployment. Yeah, you know, it, it's it, that's a that's a tough question there. Ed. Uh, well, I I always get hung up in my own thinking about how much of it's nature, how much of it's nurture, right? How how much of it is just the planets are in alignment in this one human being, and he or she has this capacity that's just innate. And they just have it and they somehow make stuff happen. And others seem to be able to marshal the right circumstances and put people in the right places. And and they almost will it into existence, even though it may not be their idea. So I, I, I you depending upon which cocktail you have in my hand and the timing, I probably will come down on different sides of the, uh, the discussion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, all right. Let's, I'm seeing, you know, in the last few years, I've gotten to work with a lot of small companies and I have, I see both, uh, you know, the, the, the idea, the idea generators who turn things over. And then I see other, other people, uh, who they got the idea and then they go, man, I wonder how I can build a business. Uh, and then they, they go to school as hard on building a business as they went in the technology, the idea, yeah. uh, whether it's operations or sales, uh, and marketing, it's, it's th- those people really are amazing. When, when did you, uh, cause you've been on a journey. I mean, you've, you've been at this for a while. Uh, when did you feel like you became really self-aware as a leader, as an executive? <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. Cause I, I think I, I, if, if, if I look at my own self, I, you know, I'm 67. So I feel like probably it was around 60 that I, I think I probably started to go, okay, I know myself pretty well at this point and know my strengths and my weaknesses and my biases. I'm, I'm curious about for you, where, where you think you are in that journey. I'd like to imagine it was a couple of years earlier. Um, but yeah, you, you know, I, I started out in the army and I was a company commander at relatively early in my career. And then about 25 years later, I went, man, now I am actually ready to have that job I had as a first lieutenant. Yeah. Um, so I, I would, you know, it's probably 30 years into career before I, it started to dawn on me that, you know, okay, this is not all about you, buddy. Yeah. Uh, this is about getting the right answer, not being right. This is about getting all those people around the table to uh, get their ideas out uh, and get collaborating, not to, not for you to expound on how smart you are. For the for the folks, the majority of whom might be younger than you and I on this <laughs> this <laughs> podcast, is there is there any trick? Is there any tool, implement, uh, experience that you feel like is really has been profound for your own self awareness? I think you know some it might be cliche, but I actually learned a lot more from some spectacular failures uh, yeah. than the successes. Oh yeah, uh, you know when something crashes and burns, and then later. Yeah, you betcha. Realize, oh wait, somebody told me what was going to happen, and I was just too arrogant to listen to them. Yeah, because they were pretty junior, and I'm pretty—I was pretty senior. Um, I, I think some of those failures, and then you know, I, I can think of you know very specific discussions, you know, just short discussions that stick in your mind years later uh, when you realize, oh, that's what they were talking about. Can you, you give know, me an example of one that you can share? Th- there was a. We were running a big, complicated test one time, but pretty high hazard. And a whole pile of warning alarms went off where they shouldn't have, which, you know, it's really not very, <laughs> it was two in the morning, you know, when you're thinking clearest. I'm thinking Chernobyl right now at this moment in time. No, it wasn't. It wasn't that bad. Okay. <laughs> well, nothing happened. That was what was bizarre because okay. all the alarms went off and, okay, if that happens. Other, and eventually we figured out what was wrong. That that isn't the important part. The the thing that has stuck in my mind is, you know, junior officer, I went into the colonel, went, well, you know, we've gone through everything we can think of and, and we haven't found the problem yet. He just said, well, then you haven't thought of everything yet, have you? Oh, oh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I guess we should. Statement <laughs> we of the better, obvious, right? You better back up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a little Dwight Eisenhower. If you haven't got the problem solved, you need to widen the problem you're looking at. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That, that, the practicality of that is wonderful. When you and I met, 
we were working with you and your team to try to help them be aligned and cohesive at uh, Battelle. And uh, there was a pretty profound moment in our first uh, session. I don't know if you remember this or not, but we had a conversation about whether this was a team or a functional work group. I don't, do you, do you recall that or not? Yeah, I do. Cause I remember one of my uh, highest performers went, what? I'm part of a team. And she wasn't kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Um, So that was a pretty important conversation I think we had with the group at that moment. Are we going to be a team or are we going to remain a functional work group? And I know you were surprised that you had an individual that was a, a great contributor who didn't necessarily think that way. But did it not occur to you that that it was possible to be anything other than a team? Not until she brought that up. That was, that was one of the best 15 minutes of production in, the, in any one of, you know, thousands of meetings you sit through. Um, both because she brought it up and got a lot of people talking. But as I thought about it later, and I, it keeps coming back to me. It's been quite a while now. You know, she was a Division One athlete. You're right. Uh, still coaches and leads Division One teams. So her thought about teams was really specific which later, you know, had to do with honesty, sacrifice, playing your position, you know, trying to win the game, not trying to win MVP. Right. Uh, and so I think that was that was a brilliant comment. It led to, a, I think, a lot of insights by the rest of the people, a lot of a lot of, a lot of thinking and changing by the rest of the rest of the group about, you know, oh, OK, we could be doing our jobs, but that ain't the same as being a team. Right. That, that's not the same as collaborating for success at a, at a sort of very profound level. Yeah. And, and even going so far as to recognizing that, that this team had to be more important than their own functional responsibility at some point. If there was a choice that had to be made, you had to err on the side of supporting this bigger team than your own functional area. Yeah, I think that, you know, that was not to bring it up. That's one of those, those things that slow learners like us keep hearing from mentors. Uh, or not you, slow learners like me. Well, I, uh, I'm in. Trust me, I'm part of it. I'm 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 part of the group. Trust me. Keep going. You know, like they can put it in different terms. Well, you know, you're part of senior management now. Now you're part of executive management. Now you're on the board. You got to think differently. Well, okay, what does that mean? Well, it means yeah, you're an advocate for your group, uh, but your group is there to get something done for the the bigger org. Um, and if if the group is turning into uh, you know, its own little uh, own little self-licking ice cream cone out on an island. You're not actually moving the orb forward, even though you might feel like you're moving your group forward. Yeah, uh, and that, that's I think that can be really tough for people to get their heads around. Well, and you know, which it was really interesting, and and I had forgotten about the individual the, the, until you you brought her up, but everybody's. Uh, experiences about being part of a great team are really diverse. You know, it's not everybody has ever been on uh, a great team of any kind. So one, they, they may not know what it feels like to be part of a great team and understand the, and the pros and the cons of that. And then uh, I think another part is not everybody's built to be a good team member. Not everybody can be a great (laughs) team member. Yeah. There are some wonderful, wonderful and extremely valuable individual contributors. Yeah. Um, and they're going to stay individual contributors. Not, not that there's anything wrong with that, right? There's some. Our world is a much better place because of individual contributors. But for the for uh, for those of us who aren't superhuman, you got to be part of a team to get something done. Um, 
One last, uh, looking back, one last uh, kind of thought for me is you had a huge team as teams go. You had, I think, 13, 14 people uh, around the table. And we had some conversation about the size and the, and the amount of work that has to be done to keep a team like that cohesive and aligned. And if you had an opportunity going forward at IN3 to have a team of, of that size, uh, would you would you be inclined to still do it, knowing the <laughs> the consequences that come with that? Or would you be inclined to, to try to go with a different structure, knowing what you know now? Uh, you know, it depends where you are. Um, um, I, I think there's good arguments to be, you know, for a senior exec to be limited to six or seven direct reports. Um, you know, there's some sociology things. On the other hand, when you're pressing frontline managers to have a real flat organization and to be responsible for 15 or 20 people, uh, it, it just feels disingenuous to not play the same game. I get uh, it. And to be honest, if you, it, we've had this discussion. When you got the right 12 people, that's not a lot of heavy lifting. Most Correct. of them are most of them are not waking up every day wondering what I want them to do. Uh, in fact, none of them are. Most of them are they're they're waking up going, okay, here's what I need you to do for me, Steve, with this client or with this uh, with this funding agency, so that we can be successful. I got to ask this question now, just because it popped in my head. You were a company commander. You had 250, 280 yeah. uh, men and women, right, in that company. Yeah. yeah. Give, give or take. Like yeah. Um, their IQs were not necessarily at the same level of the IQs of the people at contract research. I'm not saying that they were dummies, but my guess is the pedigrees were different. Uh, you'd be kind of astounded. Really? Yeah. The, okay. Uh, the, 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 yeah, yeah. They were people who were not going to go to get a PhD from Harvard, um, but they knew their they knew they knew important things. Oh, well, I was just curious yeah. if I was wondering if there was a difference in what you had to do to effectively lead that group. Do people with higher degrees are they easier or harder to lead? Or are they just different? I think they're just different. Right? If you're leading Americans, they don't take orders. I don't care if they're in uniform <laughs> or if they're in a lab coat. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta you gotta sell them on the idea yeah uh, yeah and you know the i think the other th the, the parallel is that you can't possibly know their jobs right you just the, the, right. the span of expertise isn't there so uh, i think that's why i was a crappy company commander as a first lieutenant because i thought well I, i'm pretty smart i can learn all this stuff uh, and then years later, you go, well, you know, he's been doing that for 20 years. She's been running that thing for 18 years. They actually know what the hell they're doing. I think it was okay as a company commander, but could have been much, much more effective. All right. I promise our listeners one practical idea that will help them run a more successful and sustainable enterprise. If, if there's one thing and only one thing that other people in roles like yours need to know, what would you say it would be, Steve? For me, it's focusing on getting the right answer rather than being right. That's kind of, when I'm stuck with hard problems, that's that's kind of how I try to get myself back on track. Okay, you don't know what the answer is, but I bet somebody in this room knows it 
oh, three people's combination of information knows it, or there's six people outside the room that we can get a hold of who know it. So for me, in business, no matter what, if it's a tech problem, a sales problem, marketing, finance, if, if you work your network's hard enough, you're going to find the right answers. He's Steve Kelly. He's the CEO of IN3, the Indiana Innovation Institute. Steve, if people want to reach you, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Uh, probably email. Yeah, S-K-E-L-L-Y yep. at IN3Indiana.com. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, I know our listeners do too. If if you want to reach me at Epley, the best way to reach me is at ed at the epleygroup.com. That's my email address. And also the epleygroup.com is the website. Uh, there you can get a copy of Let's Be Clear. You can meet, reach me on LinkedIn. These podcasts are released every Friday and you can get it on iTunes or also on our website. Steve, you're uh, somebody that we want to spend more time with. I'm sorry we don't have more time today because you've only primed the pump for me to ask some more questions. So I always learn from you. I always enjoy our time. Thanks for being on the Ed Epley experience. Thanks, Ed. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's theepleygroup.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills. 